Pros. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world, beyond the headlines, and look for lessons learned that can inspire us. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at thecoalface.buzzsprout.com. Thank you. In this episode, I speak with Ellen Yont. From a young age, Ellen was drawn to exploring the world beyond the rural Pennsylvania she grew up in. She shares her early start in politics and the inspiration for public service from working with Tom Ridge on his gubernatorial campaign and later as his communications director. Ellen made a bold jump, moving to former Yugoslavia, where she worked on political capacity building in fledgling democracies. This was the foundation of a global career in governance and international development. We talk about the evolution of political communications in autocratic and democratic systems, its importance in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and about her passion for giving back. Hi, Ellen. I'm uh, really delighted that we get to have this conversation today. Uh, thank you very much for joining on joining the podcast at The Call Face. Good morning. Good afternoon, Philippe. Really nice to see you again, and I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Thank you. And um, you've got a really rich and interesting background with a very international life. Um, and I would love to ask you maybe to um, uh, travel back in time and give us a bit of a picture about your early life uh, how is it, how it was like growing up and um, where your interest in the world actually came from? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. Um, I've po- I ponder that question a lot of times. I've, I've gotten that question a lot over the years from various students and people that I've spoken to. So I grew up in a really small town in Western Pennsylvania. I think at the time, maybe the population was about 11,000, which is very funny because I live in a very small town in Vermont now that I moved to about 10 years ago, and the population is about 1,700. So anyway, I fought really hard to get out of a small town. (laughs) Um, You know, very traditional upbringing. My dad owned a clothing store right on Main Street. He was a small business owner. And, you know, I think part of it is I was a really voracious reader. I went to the library, the little small town library every weekend, and I can still remember Um, as a little kid, I was a bit of a geek and I brought like three books home from the library every weekend and I read them like cover to cover. I think I went through like the entire like library, like a couple of times over. Um, you know, my dad was a big reader. He read a lot of James Mishner, the historian. Um, but I think somehow almost it was a counter reaction to growing up in a small town and really wanting to get out and see the world. Like I, you know, I've often thought about that. Like, was there some exotic great aunt in my background that went to Paris and brought me back like, you know, feathered hats. There wasn't anyone like that. Um, We didn't read the economist. We didn't read the New York times. We got like good housekeeping and reader's digest. And like every good blue-blooded American family, we had a set of Encyclopedia Britannica, right, on the shelf. But, you know, I did have, for whatever reason, and I know we talked about this as you were preparing the podcast, I knew that I wanted to study abroad, right? That was a big criteria for me when I was choosing an undergraduate institution. And so when I went to study abroad, I went to France and um, I lived in a house, a grand old house in Tours with a former Chanel model 
she had been a <laughs> Chanel model and she was now in her probably, I mean, I thought she was ancient, but looking back, she was probably in her fifties or sixties. She was quite overweight, but she had this, you know, and I lived on the top level and I let, I think I really came back from that experience, very changed and just thought, you know, I studied IR as an undergrad. I started as a math major. I switched to IR. I learned French. You know, I came back speaking relatively fluently and I was like, that's it. I'm going to live overseas. I'm going to change the world. And so I think that was a big part of it. And the other big part of it was, frankly, after I graduated from college, I was broke. I had no money. Um, my dad had actually lost his business when I was in college quite quite tragically, the economy had tanked in that part of the United States. And so I went to Washington and I worked for a year and I saved a lot of money. And then I went overseas and backpacked across Europe. And so then I spent a lot of time backpacking and really getting um, a feel for that part of the world. And we'll talk a little bit later, but that was actually my first trip into Yugoslavia. I still remember taking an overnight train, an old train with the red velvet seats and the you know brown paneling and the really surly guards. And it was my best friend from college and I, and we backpacked. And I still remember really plain as day that train that we took from Zagreb to Split and being met by this, um, you know, little old woman, you know, sobe, sobe was the, the you know, the word, the, the Serbo-Croatian word for room, sobe, like a pension. <laughs> and she met us and she walked us. I think we got off the train at like five or six in the morning and she walked us to her, uh, her sobe. And I didn't know Rakia. I know Rakia now, the plum oh, brandy. Gosh. But right. back then I didn't know. And it was like <laughs> six in the morning and she poured us shots of Rakia, you know, and I was some like 22 year old, you know, with a year of work under my belt in Washington. And I think we did three shots and we slept all day. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. I've been trying Rakia. I mean, I I know how pretty that is. Yeah. Well, six in the morning is not a good idea after being on the night train from Zagreb. And you said a lot there in this introduction. So passion for um, kind of this this seed that was planted in you somehow to to explore the world, and then then your whirlwind travels through through Europe, and then your your desire to change the world. And at, at some point, you were drawn also to to politics. Um, so c- can you share how that happened? Like why politics if you wanted to change the world? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, exactly. And, um, you also you you also um, drawn to to uh, Governor Tom Ridge, um, so also on the Republican side. So how, how did your um, political inclinations get shaped in, in those early years as well? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Well, I think you have to remember, looking back, Washington was a very different place back then. It's hard, hard to remember. <laughs> it is hard to remember. Shake, you know, if we can shake out those cobwebs. Being bipartisan was a badge of honor back then. Um, the Republicans were in the minority, so anything you did, you had to reach across the aisle and work with a, you know, a member on the other side. And that was not viewed in a disparaging manner at all. That was before the government shut down in 1995. And, you know, obviously before a lot of conservative uh, media. Um, And so I think what drew me to politics, just to answer your question, you know, I was always drawn to Washington, D.C. I felt that, you know, if I was going to work in international relations, 
I knew for whatever reason, I didn't want to join the State Department and go the diplomatic route. But, you know, back in the day, there was really not a lot of internet. So we all read this book called like, What Color Is Your Parachute? You should Google that. It was all about these like careers. But, you know, there wasn't really anyone talking to me about international development, which is why I'm so passionate about talking. Because if if I can jump in, I mean, you can imagine that growing up in a small town in Pennsylvania, there were not all that many role models about what a career in international relations, let let alone politics politics, like federal politics looked like, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've actually been reunited with one person recently. He went to my undergraduate. I went to Allegheny College, which is a small liberal arts college in northwestern Pennsylvania. And my neighbor in the little town that I grew up, he had gone there for undergrad. And then I don't remember where David went to grad school, but he joined the Foreign Service. And so I didn't know him. I've been reunited with him since at a couple of reunions and we keep in touch. But so he was kind of out there, but a little bit vaguely. But somebody had given me this advice. I had sort of gotten out of Allegheny and started doing what I counsel all young students to do, like talk to as many people as possible, do informational interviews, get a feel for for what you want to do and maybe what you don't want to do by process of elimination. And so I had talked to someone who actually worked in Congressman Ridge's office, who was also a graduate of Allegheny. And he said, Ellen, you know, the best thing you can do when you're starting out, if you're not quite sure how you want to get into international relations or what you want to do is work on Capitol Hill and gain an understanding of how the legislative process works and understand the three branches of government. And that was some really great advice that was given to me because I did that. I went on and I was a young legislative assistant um, for then Congressman Ridge. And I really got to see how the three branches of government cooperated or, you know, coordinated. And that's been a foundation for my career. I still rely on some of the things that I learned on Capitol Hill um, in, you know, in my career in the private sector, the public sector, the NGO sector. How did Tom Ridge's politics inspire you or shape you, actually? Because you, you mentioned that very early you had this, you were drawn to this idea of service. And the, the politics on Capitol Hill, a lot, a lot of it is about positioning, I imagine. And, and Well, now it is. Now it's very much about positioning. I think I, I don't want to generalize, but I do think, of course, there's a cadre of people that don't go to Washington to legislate. They go to position. But back then you went to legislate. And Tom was a public servant. And I I looked up to his politics. Many of us did. He had a strong um, relationship with Allegheny College uh, where I went. His younger brother had graduated from there. And so there was kind of this like channel, this pipeline into into his sort of staff. And I had, they were people that I was, you know, I was talking to, I'd worked for another member. He wasn't the first member of Congress that I worked for. I'd worked for a number member, but I respected his brand of politics. He was ethical. He believed in public service. Um, You know, in some ways, maybe I was drawn to his life story. You know, his dad worked three jobs. My father had worked three jobs right out of college. My father had gone to school on the GI Bill but we had these very similar stories, I think. So maybe I saw that and I saw his commitment to public service and making a difference for Pennsylvania. Um, I think that's what I saw. And it really got me off, I think, as I told you before, because I then got into working for him and we were doing such important things for the state of Pennsylvania. And I worked on the gubernatorial campaign and then I went on to become his director of communication. I kind of got sidetracked from the international relations path that I was on. But that was a good detour, as I always say. Like, you know, I was on this road to an international relations career. I took an off ramp. I had that detour. And then 
fortunately, a few years later, when I joined the International Republican Institute, I was able to get back on that road. Would you mind sharing how that actually happened? <laughs> how, how did you decide to exit yeah. politics and, and, and end up back onto the original track that you'd wanted to do all along? As just to back up a little bit, you know, I was working as a legislative assistant for, for then Congressman Ridge in Washington. Um, he was obviously positioning to run for governor. Again, it's hard looking back because he then went on to become Homeland Security Secretary, but you forget he was this unknown congressman from Erie, and it was a five-way primary, and no one thought that he had a shot in heck in winning that. Um, he was sort of catapulted to the to the front of the pack with, I have to tell you about his first uh, political ad. He was, you know, back then, of course, he was being viewed as an insider, a Washington insider. And so his political consultant, a guy whose name you may recognize, Stuart Stevens, Stuart's very active in the Lincoln Project and is an author. And Stuart was our political consultant and he worked with us to develop a, an ad uh, where Tom was standing on Lake Erie. And he said, you know, I'm from Erie, halfway between Cleveland and Buffalo. And he was in a leather bomber jacket. And his mom yelled, Tom, put your hat on. And it was this, re it was in the middle of winter, right? And it was this really unconventional ad that sort of people started saying, oh, who is this guy, right? Because that's who he was. He was this guy who had made his way to Washington and went back, drove back every weekend. He had this old car that he used to drive from Washington up to Erie. So anyway, uh, fast forward, I'm now working in state politics. I've been with the governor, congressman for seven years now. And I get a call and offer to go volunteer to use some vacation time to go do some political training in Slovakia with an, an NGO in Washington called the International Republican Institute. And I think that's great. That sounds really interesting. Uh, let me go over there. And um, I fall in love with the work we're doing. We're training young Democrats, small d, a lot of them are youth, on political campaigning, political messaging. And I come back from that trip. I think it was a 10-day trip. And I come back from that trip and I think this is it. This is this is the intersection of my love of politics and my love for international relations. I've found it. You know, I've found that nexus to do international relations. And about I think it was about a year later, they were work, looking for a country director uh, for Serbia. And I said, yeah, I want to put my hat in the ring for that job. And I flew down to Washington um, actually with Governor Ridge, he was giving a speech at the National Press Club. And I flew down there with him. And somewhere along the way, I said, no, this is a bad idea. What was I thinking? I don't want to go work for them. I want to stay with Governor Ridge. He was being talked about as a potential uh, running mate. And you had a pretty senior role as well. You, you were director of communication. You had direct access to the Governor Ridge. That there was, you had everything going for you for for uh, for a, kind of a pretty pretty uh, up, upward trajectory within the, within that ecosystem. I imagine. Yeah, I was a member of his senior staff, and I was thirty one. I was the youngest director, youngest female director of communication in state history. So yeah, I was very young and working my tush off, working my tail off. Um, but it was a really, what I would call heady time for all of us. We were getting a lot of things done legislatively. I was traveling all of, over the state with the governor, flying on the state plane, really getting to see Pennsylvania in a unique way. Um, but yeah, I went over to Slovakia. I did this training for 10 days. I came back um, and I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. I finally found it. It took me a while, but I found it. 
And fast forward, and they're opening an office in Serbia. Okay, so I told you I've flown down on the state plane, but somewhere along the way, I thought, ooh, this is a bad idea. No, I don't want to do this. This is really a bad idea. Like, to your point, what am I thinking? Like, Tom's going to run for national office, or he's going to be on the national ticket. And, you know, I loved uh, working for the governor, great staff, really passionate, dedicated uh, people that I was surrounded by, smart people. And so I go over to the offices of the International Republican Institute, and I remember sitting down with the director then of that particular program, and he said sort of the same question, like, why would you want to leave Tom Ridge? Like, you know, he it just seemed odd. Why, you know, why would you want to leave him? He's a rising star in the GOP. And I said, actually, John, you know what? You're actually right. I don't want to leave, but I've made this appointment. Very curious what you're doing. I had a great experience in Slovakia. Can you tell me more about it? I'd love to hear more about the the position and the work that you're doing. And I left seven hours later <laughs> with a job offer. <laughs> And then you had to talk it through with 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 uh, with Governor Ridge, right? I did. I mean, well, you know, it seems like a crazy story because here I am, you know, working for the governor in state politics, Harrisburg, Belgrade, Serbia is a long way away. <laughs> I'm sure there's a Belgrade in the U.S. somewhere in Texas or something. <laughs> there, I think there is. You're right. I think there is. So, you know, I wasn't married at the time, and uh, you know, my parents. You know, they sort of, I mean, they were very proud of my work in state politics, but to seek their counsel about this position, I just didn't really think that maybe they could, they would have the perspective, right? My parents didn't have passports, they didn't travel. So I called up to the governor's residence. Um, I used to go up there every evening to drop off the governor, like most evenings, I'd go up there to drop off the briefing packet because it was on my way home or and so I called up there and I said, Governor, I need to come up. And he said, I'll oh, just leave my briefing packet, you know, with the with the staff. And I said, no, I, I really need to chat with you. And so I think his antenna went up and uh, I walked past the state police were like, you know, the governor's secret service. And there was this long hallway and I walked past and I walked into the official residence. But he had a private library um, down the hallway to the left, a beautiful, you know, wooden paneled library, leather chairs. And I remember he had been like out for a jog or something. So he was in sweatpants and he was sitting across from me and he was like, Ellen, what's up? And I said, you know, Governor, I, I have to tell you about this job offer that I've gotten with the International Republican Institute. And uh, they've offered me a job to go set up their operation in Belgrade, Serbia, as you know. Milosevic had stolen the municipal elections a couple months before. And John McCain was a very dear friend of the governor's. In fact, when John McCain passed away, uh, the governor was one of the pallbearers at his funeral. And John McCain was the chairman of IRI. And so we talked for a while and he just leaned in. I still remember he leaned, leaned in and he said, Ellen, go do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's quite a powerful endorsement. And what I love in, 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 in your story is the contrast between where you were um, working for Governor Ridge and then where you landed in the middle of this messy um, uh, Serbia with, with a very embryonic um, political uh, context and, and, and being parachuted there to try to bring in a, a modicum of, of a political uh, kind of know-how to, to people whose model was was um, authoritarian um, style of, 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 of Tito and, 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 and other leaders of the region. So how is it like? How was your, do you still remember your, your first political training in that 
in that landscape? I remember landing there and um, feeling like it was very, very foreign, very <laughs> far away. You know, I traveled in France and Spain and Germany and Luxembourg. And boy, this was off the beaten path. And it felt seedy. It felt um, gangster-like, I would say. There was a sign when you walked into the Hyatt Hotel. There were two international, well, three international chains. There was the Intercon, the Hyatt, and or maybe it was just two. And I remember there being a sign at the door saying, please leave your guns and machine guns at the reception. Well, that should have felt a lot like in the U.S., no? Well, now it does, yes. But back then, I mean, there were still um, shootings yeah. of between rival gangs. Um, yeah, it felt very dark, but exciting, very exciting. And so I had to set out to develop these relationships with these political party leaders. Who was I? Some young American woman in a very sort of misogynist society where all the political parties, with the exception of one, was run by men. And I had to find staff. I had to find an apartment. I had to um, find an office. And the government, Milosevic, was still in power. So they did not like the fact that the American-funded NGO, the International Republican Institute, was there. They saw that as meddling in their affairs and very destabilizing. And of course, I didn't even get into the country on the first try. I lived across the border in a little town called Seged, Hungary, because I was denied a visa. And then when I did finally get in, they put me on a one-month single-entry visa, which was very much an attempt by the so government. trying to make your life difficult. Yeah, and they didn't want us to set up an office, but I said, you know what, if I'm going to be successful, I just have to say the hell with it, and I have to hire staff, and I have to set up an office, and I have to act as if I'm here on a one- or two-year visa. And so that's what we did, and we started you know, the program, and people came to, started coming to us. Political leaders had heard. I mean, the National Democratic Institute was already there. They'd been there for a short amount of time, but you know, people started then, the door started opening, and I hired two young assistants who'd come out of the political science department um, at the university, both really smart, and they knew a lot of the young political leaders, a lot of them that went on to form OTPOR, the student resist, you know, the nonviolent student resistance movement. So yeah, I just jumped in feet first. But I think looking back, I didn't even realize what an oddity I was. I see it now, but I was like a colorful peacock <laughs> in this, gray, like, yeah. you know, yeah. in this sea of gray. And this, you know, the city was dirty. It was poor. It was under the outer wall of sanctions. People were not traveling to Belgrade, hey, Serbia. Can, can you give us a flavor of some of these? early trainings and, and the, the the skills gap they were there and the, the type of um, knowledge and, and, uh, and know-how and techniques that um, that the local political leaders were looking for. Um, just curious, and also maybe some of their background as well, yeah. Well, I think in some respects, maybe in the early days, there was a disconnect because they they faced such huge, huge odds. The media was completely controlled by Milosevic, the state police, the police force, all of it. A lot of them were under surveillance. Um, and so we were teaching things about, you know, message discipline, even going door to door. And they thought that was crazy. But, you know, what I always said in these trainings was, I'm going to give you a menu of options. Pretend like you're choosing from the menu, you know, the appetizer, the main course, the dessert. You might not choose anything. Maybe you're not hungry. You might choose one thing or maybe you're going to file it in the back of your of your head. And that may come in handy later. But I think more than anything, Philippe, it normalized what they were doing for them to be able to say, 
we're going to talk, and they weren't just talking to the Americans, they were talking to other Europeans about trying to bring modern election methods to bear on what they were doing. And so, you know, I was working with some of the youth parties from the Democratic Party. I was working, obviously, to try to help them um, at a higher level. And I wasn't working in Belgrade. I should also make that point clear. I wasn't working with the national parties. I was working with chapters all around Belgrade. We had divided the country, IRI and NDI. And so when this American woman, this political consultant, came into town, to meet with their political party and speak to them. Like these rooms were packed. People were just so hungry. I say they were like sponges. They were so hungry for attention, information, anecdotes from the United States. How did we overcome things? Now they were facing much, much bigger obstacles than what anything that I had faced. But I think just just standing side by side with those democratic small D parties to say, we want to help you. We're here to provide assistance. We brought in outside trainers. Not many people wanted to come to Serbia, to be honest. IRI's model and NDI's model, IRI more so, uses volunteer trainers. Not a lot of people wanted to get on a plane and go to Belgrade, Serbia in 1997 and 1998. Yeah. And so, so interestingly, after this Serbia experience, you remained in the region and you, you also provided similar, similar support um, in a number of other countries. Um, that that we're facing similar um, challenges of nascent democracies or fra- even fragile states actually altogether, and I'm, I'm really curious to ask you to reflect a bit on that experience and what it's taught you about um, how political systems work, um, and especially in these kind of early stages of of, uh, of kind of po- post conflict um, transition. Well, I would say the biggest thing that we did, and so just to clarify, after Serbia, I I was sort of forced to leave there because the NATO bombing of Kosovo began in the beginning of 1998. I think it was March of 1998. So I was asked if I would move to Croatia and work in Croatia. And there was sort of this emerging um, sentiment around building a coalition of parties And so I was working in Croatia, then eventually spending a little bit of time going back and forth across the border. Um, And I think the biggest thing that we did um, as an international community, and not just IRI, although I do think IRI was very instrumental because we were doing political party polling, and that was really instrumental in helping the public see how much discontent there was. So Uh, We brought coalitions together. We brought a six-party coalition together in Croatia. And I do think that we had a lot to do with helping the six political parties see that they couldn't, they could not win on their own. And so we, you know, we coined the phrase, the coalition bounce, that they would get a bounce if they came together. And we showed them the political party polling. Um, But, you know, these were, a lot of these guys were old, you know, either exiles or political science professors, and they were very academic and they were very like, you know, I'm going to tell the people what they need. That's their brand of politics because that's what they grew up with under Milosevic and Tuchman. And so what we really tried to introduce was more, I would say, um, consultative, um, you know, campaigns, um, inclusive campaigns, inclusive in the sense of bringing people in, listening to their concerns. Um, And that was a new, whole new brand of politics and campaigning in that part of the world at the time. It had been very top down. And so by working with those parties at the grassroots level, you know, we were able to help things bubble up to the national 
to the national level. And then eventually, of course, in Serbia, they formed the big coalition Zajedno, which was a six, 16 or 17 party coalition that ultimately mm, won. Yeah. And so you also used your, your skill set in, in other countries in the region uh, and have done so for, for many years after that. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious to ask you about what you've seen as patterns or, or insights you've gathered in, in this process of building um, political capabilities in, in, in kind of these fragile democracies? Well, I think all, I would say to your point, yes, I traveled then um, about the last year and a half I was in the region. I had I had left IRI at that time and I had my own uh, sort of political public relations consulting firm and I traveled to Macedonia, to Romania, one trip to Bulgaria. Um, you know, I saw a lot of the same patterns around inability to communicate, really working with them on how to communicate with the electorate. Um, and then there was a there was that governance gap between coming together as a coalition and then being able to govern. And so the idea of political compromise, and I would say that was probably the biggest thing that was happening at the time in the region was this transition from having been raised politically in very authoritarian systems to having to compromise and govern together in post-conflict societies. Now, we've seen a lot of backsliding um, on that, certainly in the region of late, um, certainly in Serbia, we've seen a lot of backsliding. You mean backsliding on the democracy? Yeah, both democracy and the ability to compromise. Right. right. But, but interestingly... The- what I would love to hear your thoughts on is because you also look at it from a communication expert standpoint. And typically you, you talked about the legacy of authoritarianism as being actually abysmal in communication, top down, all of that. Right. But what's interesting is it sounds like in recent years, there is backsliding in the democracy standpoint, but it sounds like it's also coinciding with um, all forms of regimes upping their game, including authoritarian yes. systems in being extremely effective in communication. So I'd love to have your view on that. <laughs> oh, Philippe, absolutely. And we could talk about this for hours. So yes, absolutely. Um, we have seen uh, you know, what, what you've said. That's what we've seen. And so what you have found with these autocratic regimes is incredible digital savviness, right. incredible use of digital technology, bots, et cetera, um, disinformation camps, as we know, uh, in Russia, in China. Um, you know, the United States is putting funding into countering malign influence, obviously very focused on Russian information, disinformation. Um, you know, my personal belief is we're really far behind. We've been behind. You remember we talked about the fact that bin Laden was communicating from a cave and we could not combat you know, bin, bin Laden's messaging. So yes, at the same time that you've seen backsliding on democracy, you have seen this rise in autocrats becoming very savvy about how they communicate. And it's, you know, it's Orwellian. I mean, look at the statements that Rush, that Putin made just a few days ago when the African leaders were in Moscow, you know, blaming Ukraine, saying Ukraine started the war and Russia has a peace plan and Ukraine's unwilling... I mean, just the level of outright what I would call, um, I can't even call it disinformation. I mean, it's outright, um, you know, lying to the electorate. We've seen it in the United States, clearly, uh, with Trump, the ability for these leaders to go in front of their, to go in front of the public and outright lie to them about reality. It's very Orwellian. So 
I personally believe that the United States is very far behind. Um, they have made some efforts around something called the U.S. Global Engagement Center out of the State Department. Obviously, we know DOD does a lot in terms of their um, you know, psychological operations, psyops, or countering disinformation. But I don't believe that we resource it properly, nor do I believe that it's a job that government can do alone. And I think it's something that has to be you know, a collective endeavor, but we're, we're, we're getting our hat handed to us in terms of what some of these governments are doing. You, you touched on uh, Vladimir Putin and of course you, you, you've been doing um, some uh, work in, in Ukraine as well. I'm curious to, to uh, hear your take on President Zelensky's uh, approach to communication actually, because this is somebody who's facing probably similar challenges to, to, to those of mm -hmm. countries that you're familiar with. So relatively fragile states, not a lot of track record of, of really um, um, stable democracy. And here comes somebody who's a, able to use communication in, 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 in a way that is essentially pushes the tide uh, back uh, against something that seemed to be a foregone conclusion in, almost at the time of Putin's invasion. Well, look, I think Zelensky and his team have been masterful. I think they've been master communicators. Like masterful in the same way as autocrats, in a way, like in making sure that only one point of view is heard or masterful in a democratic sense as well? I would say uh, more, vastly more in terms of a democratic sense. And, and let me maybe give you a couple of anecdotes Um, and when I think about Zelensky, I, I, and again, let, let me say, I think there's two ways that you need to think about his communications. One is on the international stage and one is domestically. So let's take the international stage. And I think Zelensky and his team have been brilliant in terms of the way that they have spoken in, to international audiences. So what's the key tenet of communications? Know your audience. He stood in front of a joint session of Congress in December and talked about the Battle of Saratoga and Pearl Harbor. And he uses these historical touch points to rally support. When he spoke to the House of Commons in the UK, flashing the V for victory sign, the Churchill V for victory sign, they do their homework, right? Zelensky, of course, you know, he's like Ronald Reagan. He's a communicator. I mean, think about the lofty language that was written by Peggy Noonan, the great speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. Zelensky has a very good speechwriter. But you know what? Some of that's an eight. You can't teach all that. I know that from having done a lot of training. I mean, I say the same thing about Tom Ridge. He was a master communicator because he was genuine. He had strong convictions. He had a strong personal story. And I think Zelensky has a lot of those things going for him. Now, I know there's been criticism of him and Yermak, his chief of staff, that they're too dictatorial, that there's maybe not dictatorial, but too heavy handed, that there's one narrative, there's martial law. Um, I do think that the pendulum will swing the other way uh, when Ukraine is victorious. And I'm a firm believer that Ukraine will be victorious. They have to be. And so I do think that the pendulum will swing the other way um, in terms of communication. And there will be, you know, there will be more space. But I don't, I can't in any way, shape or form compare Zelensky and his brand of communications with Putin's. I mean, there's no moral equivalency there whatsoever. Can you share a little bit where, where you are today, actually? So I, I recall this, how we started uh, our conversation with your, um, uh, some, uh, please allow me to call it a bit of idealism, a desire to change the, change the world. Mm -hmm. And then with a, a um, uh, almost kind of 
um, embodying your dream and vision of of um, traveling the world and uh, helping all these different countries and communities um, with their democratic aspirations. So wh wh where are you today, actually? What fire is burning in you and, and uh, what are you <laughs> devoting your energies to? Oh, Philippe, I'm still an unapologetic, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, idolist, right? I'm still unapologetically optimistic and um, a believer that we can make a difference in our in our own way, each of us. So yeah, so you know, I just got done spending a year out in Warsaw, Poland. I just came back to Vermont. I live in a really tiny village in Vermont, quite a quite a far stretch from the center of Warsaw, where I was living for a year, working on Ukraine recovery and reconstruction. And so very much, um, I'm very personally and professionally committed. Um, to that recovery effort, still working on it, just doing it from here in Vermont in my in my farmhouse and going back and forth to Washington, D.C., a far cry. So, yes, I am still an idealist. Um, I still believe in democracy um, for all of its flaws. Um, I still believe, you know, that good people can make a difference in the world. So, you know, a big part of my time professionally is spent working on Ukraine. And then I like to think and believe, I believe in, you know, kind of giving back. And I've really tried to lead a purpose-driven life. And it's something that my husband and I are very committed to. And so we give back a lot to our little community here. I serve on a number of boards. I'm on the Vermont Council for World Affairs. I sit on a board out in Nairobi for a refugee organization called Refugee that works with young girls who are fleeing conflict to give them job skills, protection from trafficking, et cetera. I'm a global ambassador for refugee. Spent a lot of time in Africa the last couple of years before I uh, moved over to Warsaw. And then my husband and I, back in 2018, we formed a small family foundation called the One Connected Village Foundation to focus on women and girls and empowering women and girls um, through investments in really local um, nonprofit organizations. And that that work grew out of, as I mentioned, some work I was doing in Nairobi, Kenya. And so we were really focused on East Africa. But it became very apparent after the evacuation from Afghanistan and then obviously what's happening in Ukraine that we needed to broaden the lens to focus more not on East Africa, but just women and girls in conflict. So that's been the focus of the um, of the organization. We raise money. We do educational talks. I just gave a talk uh, about Ukraine when I was home here in Vermont in April, and we raised um, you know a couple thousand dollars. We're not talking about millions of dollars, but you know fifty thousand dollars a year that we're raising. Uh, and that goes a long way for small, small organizations. So we've donated to groups like World Central Kitchen in Ukraine, Razom, which is a very well-known uh, organization, something called Move Ukraine. And we really try to find small local organizations where we can um, get to know the leadership of those organizations and really understand the impact um, that they're having. Uh, we gave a lot of money recently to communities that were impacted by the flooding as a result of the Russian um, destruction uh, of the dam and the flooding of Kherson in southern Ukraine. Well, thank you for that. This is really an inspiring model and blueprint for, for some of us who want to have an impact, not, not just through our, our direct professional career, but in, in, uh, uh, in, in volunteering and, and, and donating and being involved in those projects, actually. Um, we, we have a, a, a little tradition in this podcast to, to close with a few 
um, personal questions. But before before I do that, oh, <laughs> so the first one is, is is this very basic one because I know you you mentioned you're a voracious re reader. So it's just is there something that you've read recently that changed the way you see the world? Um, well, I'm reading something now, and I'm always one of those people that has. I'm just sitting. I'm laughing because I'm looking at the books that are on my desk. <laughs> so um, you are a badass. Chasing chaos. Twilight of Democracy by Anne Applebaum. <laughs> okay. Um, the Land of Milk and Honey. That's about beekeeping in right. Vermont. I haven't read that one yet. Uh, Net Positive by Paul Pullman. But I knew you were going to ask me that question. So this is a book I'm reading right oh, now, Bloodlands by Timothy oh, Snyder. Wow. Okay. He's, yeah, he's one of my favorite authors, of course, on Tyranny, and I read him almost daily. It's a heavy book. I can see that um, from you holding and it. <laughs> Yeah, it's heavy. And, you know, I'm one of those people when I read, I mean, this is one that I'm reading, like it's a GMAP course. I'm underlining it. Um, Dean Nutter would be so proud of me. Uh, former Dean Nutter would be so proud of me. I'm reading it as if there's going to be a, um, you know, conversation board that I have to, you know, put my, uh, put my <laughs> comments on. Right? Um, it's great. It's, um, I'm reading this one. I'm, I'm obviously reading a lot of books right now about European history. I was very busy the last year in Warsaw, and I didn't have as much time for reading. As I would have liked, and I found that I needed to do a little bit lighter reading when I was there because I was getting up every day, as I still do, and I listen to Ukraine, the latest podcast on the Telegraph, and I read all the tweets and I find out what's happening and how many missiles Russia has fired into Kiev, which May has been a horrendous month. Um, so anyway, but now that I'm home and I have a little bit more distance, yeah, this is this is one of them. Thanks for the recommendation. And the second quick question is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a lot into uh, habits and rituals. And so I'm really keen to ask um, the, the guests who come on, the pod, on this podcast, if there's a particular ritual or a habit that you're practicing that has improved your life. I will say what I did this morning, if it would help. Um, so I live in the country. And I went out and I cut flowers. Um, our gardens are all blooming right now. I know it's a podcast, so your listeners can't see them. Oh, but um, this is what I cut this morning. Yeah, our peony bushes are... And uh, we raise chickens here on our farm. And uh, we have a dog and a cat. So I went out for a walk with my dog this morning. So yeah, I mean, you know, look, living in Vermont in the summer is magical. And so I'm really into hiking with my daughter and uh, walking and uh, being out in the gardens. And so that's what I'm into. That's what I'm into right now. And I did a lot of walking in Warsaw as well. Warsaw is a very walkable city. So I guess that's one of my big habits. I'm a big walker. <laughs> Thank you. And last one is you're somebody who's traveled all over the place. So naturally, I was keen to ask you um, for a place that has special significance uh, to you. Well, I would say Croatia, to be honest, and Serbia, that part of the world, the Balkans, they, um, I mean, you know, I think about it in a different way. I mean, that was very formulative for me. I spent five and a half years living in the Balkans in Croatia and Serbia. And so that part of the world will always have a soft spot for me. If you ask me where I like to vacation, that's a different um, question entirely. So we love to go down to Mexico and get off the beef, beaten path. And we just spent 10 days in February down in the Yucatan Peninsula in a little fishing village. And as we say, we were the only, you know, well, we're not, we're not good Spanish speakers. Let me just say that. My second language is French and I speak a little Serbo-Croatian. My husband speaks Russian. My daughter, who's a freshman at Tufts, was not with us on that trip. She's our fluent Spanish speaker. 
Um, so we just stayed in this little fishing village and uh, we loved it. We loved it right on the right on the Gulf of Mexico. And it's down where the cenotes are and fresh ceviche. And um, we didn't it's as far away from Cancun as you can get. Thank <laughs> God. And that's where we just spent 10 days. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ellen. I've really enjoyed our conversation. This is w- w- wonderful to, to reconnect. Oh, Philippe, thank you. Yeah. And thank you for taking the story. Maybe if I could just say one last thing, I don't know if it fits. It's just to encourage our listeners to keep reading about Ukraine, um, keep educating yourself about Ukraine. Um, this is really good versus evil, democracy versus autocracy. And we all need to understand that the stakes are much higher and what Ukraine is fighting for. It's been a little disappointing, to be honest, having come back from Warsaw and seeing the extent to which domestic politics has overtaken um, you know, yeah. the Ukraine narrative or even the PGA golf tour was a lead story one day after you know horrific missile attacks in Ukraine. I get it, but... Um, there can't be anything more important than we're fo- that we're focused on right now than Ukraine and sil- seeing that they get the military, security, diplomatic, humanitarian support that they need, not just from the United States, but from the Europeans. So this week is the Ukraine Recovery Conference in London, hosted by the Ukrainians and the um, and Brits. In fact, I'm getting ready to jump on a couple of side events um, after this. So if I could just encourage your listeners to, to keep caring about Ukrainians and the future of Ukraine. Um, we are living through history and um, it is something that each of us you know, has a responsibility to do, particularly GMAPers. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at the coalface.bussprout.com. Thank you.